This morning we're going to be reading from the book of Luke, and if you're um, new to the Bible, it's about in the uh, last fourth of the Bible. It's the third third book in the New Testament. We're going to be in Luke 22, 14 through 20. And I'll read that now. <clears throat> and when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Thanks, Hannah. All right, I have to do it again. He is risen! So I have to do that because, you know, that's, this is the one time a year when you Minnesotans will likely respond back when I preach. And so this is my one shot. So even though Daniel started, I'm going to continue that. And it's good to repeat it. Not because you just do that to go through a religious ritual because that's what you do on, on, on April 17th every year. But because we need to be reminded that Jesus' resurrection indeed happened, and it changes all of history. We need it, because though Christ has come, he is not here again until he comes back. He's, there's an absence, and we feel that absence. It affects everything about our lives, our relationships. The fact that the one day of the year that our their TV doesn't work is on Easter Sunday, right? And the fact that some of you got in fights on the way to church today. That even though Christ has come, he's begun his redeeming work, we still have brokenness in our community, in our, in, our, in our relationships, and in our society, in our government. And so we need to be reminded that the resurrection indeed has happened. So it's good to be reminded regularly. Now at our church, if you're new, or if you've been visiting, or you know you're part of this covenant family, we preach through the Bible. And we've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke for like two years or something like that. And one of the reasons why we do that is because we let God set the agenda of what is important for us to talk about. And the danger is because I'm a fallible person. I have my own biases, my own hobby horses, my own cultural blind spots. And so I want to let the Bible tell me what is important. And preaching through the Bible, it's going to make us cover topics that I would never want to cover because I can be a coward. And I want you guys to like me. I'm a recovering people pleaser. Or I can avoid different topics because I just don't know it very well. And so the beauty of, of preaching through the Bible is that today, in God's providence, we're in Luke 22. And in our passage, it's focused on the Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples. Which, if you look at the text, it's going to seem more like a Good Friday passage. But I want to show you how this is actually connected to the resurrection and the redemption of the entire world. And this is really important because if you've been around church your whole life or maybe you've never been to church, and if you are not familiar with church and you're visiting, thank you for being here. You are so welcome. And it takes a lot of courage to come into this place that can feel 
so full of baggage and awkwardness and history and lots of different things that can that propel your heart away. So the fact that you're here is, a, is, a, is, is so beautiful. So thank you. you. You're welcome. And we're praying for you. And we're happy to serve you and tell you about what God has done for you. But I think when it comes to the Lord's Supper, whenever you have something that has been repeated ritually throughout history, it can lose its meaning. We can just go through the motions and forget why we do it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is my body. Daddy, daddy. I know all that gospel stuff. And I, and I remember even as a kid, just going through those rituals as I would go to church. And I remember even one Sunday visiting a church and me as a nine-year-old, maybe eight-year-old, fell asleep on my mom's lap. It was just me and her that day. And I remember the Lord's, you know, they, they passed the, the plate around with food and I woke up and I was like, oh, I'm so hungry. And I just took some food, right? And I think some old church lady passed out as she saw me out of the corner of her eye, right? Was that, was that wrong? I mean, was that, what was good or wrong about that, right? And, and I think when we see this, this, this supper, we can just not think about what is actually being said here. And so I want to show you how relevant this table that we celebrate every week at our church, how relevant it is to every little detail about our life and our human experience and what we're longing for in the future. Now, before we get into text, I want to let you know what we're not going to get into. Whenever you look at the Lord's Supper and, and, and texts like that, people can get caught up on like, what does he mean by this is my body? Is it literal, you know, transubstantiation or is it consubstantiation or however you say it, right? We're not going to get into those weeds because I think getting to those weeds misses the central point Jesus has for us. So if you're interested in the weeds, you like weeds, you like the, the depth. We're going to record a midweek podcast and then talk more about the Lord's Supper, its history, and all that kind of stuff. So let me just set that stage, and now let's jump into our text. Luke 22, verse 14. It was already read by Hannah, but we're going to look it through this passage again. On the screen, on a screen. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, to understand the significance of what's going on here, we have to understand what's going on with the Passover language. What is the Passover? So just by way of remembrance, or if this is your first time, the Passover was instituted thousands of years before this moment. It was instituted the night that Israel was delivered out of slavery the first recorded time of a whole people group recorded from slavery. That, that comes from the Bible. God delivering his people after 400 years of harsh, unjust op oppression. God delivers them. And the way he delivers them is through a multitude of plagues. And the final plague was the one that broke the camel's back and let them go. And what, what happened was that God said, if you do not let my people go, I will take the firstborn of every family in Egypt. An awful, an awful threat that he kept. So what he gave instructions for every single person. If you want to be spared from this judgment, what you do is you take a blameless, spotless lamb or goat. And you slaughter that goat. You slaughter that lamb. You take that blood and you put it on the doorposts of your home and the lintel. The doorposts and the lintel of your home. And at midnight, when the Lord comes and strikes down every firstborn, those who had the blood would be passed over. 
Like, you don't want to be passed over a job, but this is the one thing you want to be passed over. The, the Lord comes and he passes over whoever trusts in his word and put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. Passes over them. That was for anybody who would trust him. No matter how wicked they were or how undoubtful they were, if they trusted enough to put the blood there, the angel of the Lord would pass over them and they would be spared. So that night, many died. It was an awful, awful, horrible night. We do not take delight in the death of the firstborn. But it was the way of redemption for the entire people of Israel. So that night instituted the first Passover where they would eat that Passover lamb. And every year for thousands of years and to this day, this is the longest celebrated festival in history. Did you know that? To this day, out of all religions, out of all history, this is the longest held festival ritual in history. Jews would come together with their family and the head of the home would would take a cup and pass it around and go over this Passover ritual, reminding the people, the, reminding the Jews where they came from, what God had done for them, remembering his love and his mercy and his absolute authority over all peoples and even tyrants like Pharaoh. And a little young child would often ask, it would be a participatory meal, young children would ask, well, why is today different from any other day? Why tonight is different? And then the presider of the whole ceremony would speak and remind them of how they were delivered from slavery. Their ancestors did. And then he would take the bread, the unleavened bread, and say, you see this bread? This bread is the affliction, the bread of affliction of our ancestors that they ate in the wilderness. And there'll be more elements and different Jewish traditions throughout the world would emphasize different elements or add or take away, but most centrally would be the Passover lamb. Now, now that we have that backdrop for the Passover, maybe you're unfamiliar with that, we can now get into this text. Now, notice what Jesus says in this first passage that we are looking at. He says this, I have earnestly desired... That word earnestly is English translation's attempt to get at the Greek here that says, I have desired, desired. I, which I desired, I desired. Why am I saying that? Jesus is saying that I have really, really, really wanted to eat this meal with my disciples, with my best friends before I suffer. Now, how human does that sound? I want to eat with my friends before my darkest hour. Don't miss the beauty of Jesus, that he wants company. In just a few hours, he's going to want company when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wants his companions, his best friends, to be with him as he laments and he feels the weight of the world on his shoulders. I, I feel like, this is, that's not the main point of this passage, but I feel like highlighting that is important because sometimes we can over-spiritualize Jesus. He's got this glazed look in his eyes, just kind of floating around. Maybe like that. I don't know. Right? He's so non-human. He doesn't feel what he, we feel, and so we can't relate with him rightly. And, and yes, Jesus absolutely is the Son of God. He is the divine Son, always existing, never had a beginning. He was always there with the Father and the Spirit. And yet, he's also a person. 
He also has feelings and he desires intimacy with his close friends as well as comfort from humans when he is about to suffer. This is profoundly important for when we think about the gospel and what Christianity is because it reminds us that Jesus knows our struggles and our joys well. That's good news. He knows the full of human experience to the greatest joy, to the deepest sorrow. And no matter what cruel joke you think God is playing with man, you can at least say he plays by his own rules. If that's your approach and disposition towards God. This is very comforting to relate with a God that fully gets us and yet is God and separate. Why do I say that? Because we need a God that totally gets us and yet is different from us. If he's exactly the same as us, how can he help us? How is he worthy of our worship? And yet if he's so different, how can we ever relate and draw near to him? And so what the the Bible shows is this beautiful theological language of transcendence and imminence. Distance and nearness simultaneously at the same time. That's the God of our Bible who knows us well. And he can represent us well. Now, well, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to skip verse 18, and then we're going to come back to it at the end. So if you're following along your Bible, that's what I'm doing. Verse 19. And he took bread, Jesus, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and give, gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus ceremonially as the head of this family, this new family, leads this Passover, but shockingly, he changes the orientation of it that would possibly be offensive and for sure confusing for the apostles. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, the Passover was primarily something you looked backwards to, what God had done for the Israelites. Some would look forward to the final redemption of Israel, but it was a primary backward-oriented meal. And yet Jesus is speaking about himself in the present. Why is Jesus talking about his body and bread given for them? Not the ancestors' bread that they ate in the wilderness, not the past. Why is he talking about the present? This is my body given for you. What is he doing And do you remember, what is the centerpiece of every Passover? What is the culmination? It's the Passover lamb. If you remember in Luke 22, 7, it's on the screen. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So that very night that Jesus was betrayed, thousands of lambs were being slaughtered. But notice something. In this whole scene here, Every gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all talk about this scene. None of them talk about the Passover lamb. None of them even mention it. Now, it's possible they're not mentioning it because it's not there. Or it's possible that it's there, but that's not the focus. What are the writers of the gospels trying to highlight well, Jesus saying that this is my body given for you. Other, trans, other gospels say broken for you. What, the, what are the writers trying to get at? It's what the apostles didn't understand is that the Passover lamb was seated at the table. He wasn't, it wasn't emphasized because Jesus is the main course. This is profoundly confusing 
if you think about it. It would have blown their minds. And, and not only is it theologically confusing, it is against anything you would ever imagine someone to do. I mean, think about this. Any inmate on death row, which Jesus is in one sense like on death row right now, what do you do right before you are executed? You get a last meal, right? You get your favorite meal. I want this. I want that. And you gorge yourself. You take. You want to take as much as you can before your life is snuffed out. You want to eat and enjoy life because life is about to be taken. And yet Jesus, as he's on this death row, right before his life is taken, all, is he, th- all he thinks about is what he can give. How he's giving. Do you see the heart of our Savior? He is not like us. At the last moment before his life is snuffed out, he's thinking about how he can give of himself. This is the Savior we worship and serve. This idea that Jesus is the Passover lamb is made clear also by Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 5-7. It says just this, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So thinking about the Passover and thinking about this that we've just talked about, Jesus is the firstborn son who was not passed over, but took on the full, full punishment, was slaughtered, not passed over. He is the innocent lamb without blemish, so that all of us here who deserve death for our rebellion will be passed over if we put our trust in him. We're going to get into that even more in a minute. But let's talk about remembrance. Jesus says this line, do this in remembrance of me. Many of you may be familiar with that line. Do this in remembrance of me. Do what? What's the this? There's a lot of this in this passages and you have to look carefully. Well, I think it's taking this bread and cup, doing it regularly. Now, I go out of this passage to make sure I know what Jesus is getting at because Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 11. If you are taking notes, if you're interested in understanding the Lord's Supper more, you have to understand 1 Corinthians 11 as well. But he says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I think Jesus is calling his people to remember what he's done and what he will do regularly. This idea of remembrance is thoroughly Jewish. The Jews had festivals for everything throughout the year. And it was to help them remember, where'd they come from? Who are we? Dad, where do we come from? What's our story? Where do we fit into this grand story? Who is our, what's our identity? What is God doing? In fact, if you study Israel's history... There, there was a direct correlation between how faithful they were to Yahweh and how often they celebrated the feasts. So that the times that in their history where they forgot the feasts was subsequently the times they forgot Yahweh. The feasts realigned themselves regularly to who they were, what they were about, what is history, what is life about So Jesus, he takes this feast, the ultimate feast, and he revolutionizes it. See, he expands it from instead of something merely celebrating and looking back at Jesus, at at Yahweh's deliverance of God's people from sin, uh, from slavery, under the cruel, tyrannical rule of Pharaoh, Jesus expands it to be a celebration for all of God's people. 
from all ethnicities, all peoples of all times, all places, who trust in Yahweh, trust in God, of how God will deliver you from a greater Egypt, sin, a greater slavery than just the bonds of man, but sin. So one of the reasons, church and visitors, we take the Lord's Supper every week is because we need to remember who we are. We need to realign our hearts with reality, with who we are, what God has done, who Christ is, how much it costs for him to take our sin and forgive us. It reminds us that he's coming back. We'll get there in a minute too. Now, Jesus continues in verse 20, the new covenant in his blood. What is this all about? Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This phrase, cup, is the new covenant. It's confusing. Like, Jesus, like this cup, literally, that's the new covenant? What? No. I think the cup is representing the new covenant. It represents all that is going on with this cup is representing this new covenant. Now, what's a covenant? Because I know we don't use that word covenant in our common vernacular these days. Well, covenant is just a formal agreement between two parties where there would be benefits or consequences if the agreement is kept or broken. So God is making a new covenant with his people that is different from the old. What's the old? What happened in the old? Now, without getting in a whole series about the old covenant, which would take a long time, let me just highlight this. One of the most significant elements of the old covenant is the sacrificial system. Many of you guys are familiar with this, but the old covenant was answering a really big problem. And what was the problem? How does light relate with darkness without snuffing out the darkness? How does light go into a dark room while without destroying the darkness entering into that room? You see the problem with that? The physical impossibility of that? But even more than just the physics of the impossibility of light and darkness missing, more specifically, how does a holy, good, just God relate with the utterly sinful people? And so the Old Covenant is giving some sort of measure for God to relate with his people in peace without destroying them. Well, you hear that and you're saying, well, oh, man, this sounds so bloody and awful. And it was bloody and it was awful, but it was a provision. But make no mistake, God was not requiring this sacrificial system because he's bloodthirsty. He loves death. No, no, no. In fact, the Bible says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. No, God is just, and for someone as just and loving as God, this is what comes from it. Just because justice requires retribution when wrongs are done. We know this. We hear this on our streets. We see this just a few blocks from here. Justice must be paid. Retribution. Everything inside of man knows that when wrongs have been done, something has to be made right. Just saying it's okay is not enough. Anything significant like that, we know that something needs to be made right. That's inherent in our image of God. We all know justice must be paid. But also, God must be like this because he's loving. And because when you truly love someone or something, you fight for it when you wrong that love. 
When someone wrongs those I love, like my children, that brings something outside of me, out of me. And that's a good thing in measure. But nonetheless, because God loves, he provides a way for them to still relate with him in peace. There are a number of problems with this sacrificial Old Testament system, but two I want to highlight is that people, number one, continued to sin and needed sacrifices because they, their hearts were never changed. And number two, because the sin was continual because their hearts never changed, sacrifices were never ending. No end in sacrifices. So at the first Lord's Supper... Jesus inaugurates a new covenant where he will solve these two big issues and many more. Number one, after Jesus dies, is resurrected, and is ascended at the right hand of the Father, he will, they will send the Spirit of God that will progressively transform God's people, give them a new heart, new desires to make them more and more like Jesus. So he deals with the power of sin, the tyranny of sin that all of us lived under without the Holy Spirit. But the second problem of the new covenant Needing a sacrifice, never-ending sacrifice, is going to be solved where we get to this language of the cup. Let's look at this cup language. I know I keep talking about the cup. You're like, man, why do you keep talking about the cup? Well, well, let's see. I think it's interesting that in this passage, Jesus says the cup rather than blood, rather than wine or drink. Where have you heard cup before in the Bible? Or where will you see it soon? If you just look further on in your Bible... In the same chapter, Jesus is at the Garden of Gethsemane doing that thing, wanting his disciples to be near him, and he's begging God for something. What is he saying? Verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. What is this cup Jesus is referring to? What does he not want to drink? What's wrong with this cup? It's dirty? Is it, what, what's in the cup? Well, if you do search throughout the Old Testament about cup, you're going to see a lot of passages, and I had to cut a lot of them for the sake of time, but we can cover maybe them in the midweek podcast. But let me highlight just one, Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourselves, wake yourselves. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs of the bowl, the bottoms of the bowl, the cup of staggering. So what's the cup? God's wrath is the cup. God's wrath for those who have rebelled against him. That is what Jesus does not want to drink though he will willingly. I realize this is difficult. I, I honestly, because I'm a people pleaser recovery in recovery of people pleasing, I don't like to talk about God's wrath. And I think it's difficult in any culture to talk about God's wrath, especially because a lot of us have had parents who have demonstrated wrath and anger in very sinful ways. When you think of anger, you think of uncontrolled, unjustified, unmitigated, out of proportion. That's what I think of naturally. But you know what? 
The anger of God, the justice, the wrath of God is unlike any on this earth. It's a wrath that is completely just, always proportionate to the wrong, never out of control, but more terrible and unstoppable than we could ever imagine. And yet, there is good news. Let me put all this together. Listen, all of us here, all people, all time, all places, we have all sinned against God. And what do I mean by sin? I, I, I mean that we have not loved God as he ought, as we ought to. We have not loved and worshipped our creator as we ought to, nor have we treated our fellow man as we ought to. Even the best, in quotes, of us here have failed to live up to our own standards. Every single one of us here have huge regrets in our past, times where we have blown it. None of us have lived up even to our own ideals, let alone the word of God. And so we all, including this preacher here, I'm not looking down on you, I'm one of you, deserve punishment. But here is the absurdity of the good news. Though God is a God of just wrath against sinners, he also loves to show mercy. He loves to show mercy. Every time you see these passages throughout the Old Testament, it talks about his wrath, but his mercy that eclipses it in unfathomable ways. His justice, God, is inflexible. It does not bend towards our pardons or towards our pleas or towards our excuses. It does not bend. It's inflexible. And yet his love is unfathomable. So I said earlier that the cup of wrath is for those who rebelled against God. And yet who drinks the cup? Jesus, the son of God, the innocent one who only ever did good, only meant well for every interaction he ever had. Can you ever say that? Can you say that every single interaction you ever had with every, any person was perfect? Every single time you interacted with someone was always for their best good. Could you say that? None of us can say that. And yet Jesus could say that every single interaction was pure and good and loving. And this innocent one who only did good voluntarily drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf to the bottom. Till there's not a drip left. And because his blood is shed and poured out for us who trust in him, we can have our sins forgiven and the wrath of God passes over us. Because Jesus died on that cross, that blood of those who trust him covers us, then the wrath of God passes over us. But it didn't pass over him. And that is the power of the gospel. Jesus answers the problem of this never-ending reign of sacrifices by becoming the once and for all slain Passover lamb for us. This lamb that was perfect, this sacrifice that truly takes away the sins of man and transforms our hearts. But a very, very reasonable question you could ask yourself is this, how could such a death from one man take away all of our sin? All of us. How could he take my sin, your sin, the worst sin, the darkest sin? How can one man atone for many? And I want to bring your attention to Acts 17, 31. Would you read this out loud with me if you're able? Because he has fixed a day in which... God gives us assurance that Jesus' sacrifice and suffering on our behalf was enough. By conquering death, this 
Resurrection is a stamp of approval. Yes, I received that sacrifice. Yes, that sacrifice is sufficient. It's enough and it's lasting. And also this passage we see in Acts 17, it's a guarantee that Jesus will right every wrong. And if you're in here saying, there are wrongs done to me, Sam, that I cannot get over. Trust me, God does not get over it either. He will right those wrongs in his time. No injustice, no abuse will go unpunished, either on the cross for those who trust him or on that day when they have to drink the cup themselves. And what else this resurrection of Jesus does is that it gives us a glimpse of the final resurrection of God's people and the restoration of the whole world. So on this Easter Sunday, I know that we have a lot of visitors here, and I'm not going to begin to act like I know all of your situations, all your doubts, all of your history, all the complications of who you are. You are unique. You're an individual. But yet, though you are an individual, you are in the same boat as every single person in this world and that you need mercy from God. And I know that sounds so presumptuous and arrogant, but I want you to know that that is God's word and that is true. I would only say it because it's true. You need God's mercy. We all need God's mercy. You need his forgiveness. You need his substitute. If you are not obeying Jesus, the wrath of God will not pass over you. You will drink that cup. Indeed, Paul says in Romans 2.5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when the righteous judgment will be revealed. Listen, if you do not let Jesus drink that cup for you by putting your hope and your allegiance in him, wrath is indeed being stored up for you. Just imagine a giant vat filled with wrath and it's being filled to the brim and one day that will be poured out on you and you will be all alone in that moment. The only people who will not be alone are those who are trusting in a substitute and that is Jesus standing in your place. The only people who have a substitute are those who are part of his family. When you think about family, it's interesting because in the Old Testament and throughout Jewish history, who would you celebrate Passover with? Your family. Only your family. Only Jews. And what's shocking is that this one last Passover with Jesus... He pulls his disciples away from their biological homes and families and homes and celebrates as the new head of a new family. We don't see any of their family members at this meal. And what is Jesus doing in this one time? What is he saying? He's saying that he's creating a new family. The gospel doesn't just bring you forgiveness, but it also brings you a new family, a new people, a new identity. But the Lord's Supper... It's only for those who are part of the family. But here's the amazing news. You know, growing up, I've reconciled with my parents since, but there were times growing up where I'd look at other families and I just said, oh boy, I wish I was part of that family. I wish my parents didn't fight. Like, their, their parents don't fight. I wish we had the money or the comfort or the peace. I wish my family was not like that. I wish I could be part of that family. And yet I couldn't be part of that family. There are some families you can't be part of, but guess what? This family, anyone can be part of. Not by biological blood, but by the blood of the slain lamb. Anybody who puts their trust in Jesus can be part of God's family. 
That's amazing. That's shocking. That's unprecedented. You can't see that in any other religion. You can't imagine or conceive that. If you have doubts that this thing was written by a bunch of old self-serving men, no, no man would imagine that. That anybody can be part of the family. No matter your background, no matter your history, no matter your genetics, all peoples, all times, all places, all ethnicities. That's the amazing news. You can be part of this family if you're not. This is the one family everyone can be part of. So if you don't have peace with God, you do not have confidence that that day you'll have a substitute standing in your place, but you'll instead drink your own cup of wrath for you. If you are not sure you have peace with God, repent and be baptized. Trust Jesus. Come talk to another member at this church or come talk to me. I'll be standing up here afterwards. I want you to have peace with God. Jesus made huge attempts for you to have that. Don't let it go to waste. Now, as I close and and land this plane, I actually have even more good news. See, Jesus forgiving your sins and dying for you is really good news. But there's actually better news than that. I know that sounds heretical, so hold your pitchforks for one second. Let's go back to verse 16 and 17, I promise we'll get to. Verse 16 through 18, actually. Luke 22, 16 through 18. For I tell you, I will not eat it, eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus picks up the cup as the head of the home, this new family, head of the feasts. But typically each person would have their own cup. What does Jesus do? He takes his own cup and he shares that cup, passes it around. What is that a sign of? A sign of fellowship, intimacy. Share my cup. Man, if you try to share your cup with me, I'm like, gross. I don't want to share that cup. Do you see the last two years we've been part of, right? We don't do that. We don't share cups. Only my kids can share my cup and my wife, right? Jesus is sharing his cup. So we're actually going to start doing that now. Just kidding. We're not going to do that here. Some church traditions do that. We all share one common cup. It's more biblical, but it's not sanitary. (laughs) But Jesus shocks them because he passes around this cup. And after he does and gives thanks, he says something shocking. He says, this is the last time I'm going to eat this meal with you and drink this cup from with you. I will not do this again until it happens. The kingdom of God comes. What's the it? What's the kingdom of God? Now, if you look this phrase, kingdom of God, and also look for a time where the kingdom of God is talking about a meal, you'll actually find yourself in Luke 13, which you guys all remember because we talked about it a year ago. Luke chapter 13. The scene is this idea, this the final judgment. Jesus is coming back, judging uh, the world and redeeming certain people. Verse 29. Would you read this with me? And people will come. Recline at table is fellowship language, intimate language. You don't recline at table if you're sitting with an enemy, right? If you know you have an enemy who's about to betray you, you're not relaxing. You're like, you're vigilant. You're up. This, this language of laying back and relaxing is this intimate setting because you only lay down around friends and family, right? Only friends and family do you relax like that. Now, let me show you one more passage from the Apostle John, and then let's put it all together. Revelation 19.9. Would you read this with me? And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who 
the marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen to me. The greatest news of the gospel is not merely that your sins are forgiven or your shame is removed. As if we just simply use God to make us feel better and our consciences not condemn us. No, the great, the greatest ultimate news is that the blood of Christ gives us access to God himself. The goal is not forgiveness of sin. That is the doorway to something far grander, and that's knowing God. Think about this. In the beginning, God had fellowship with man face to face. He would walk in the garden with them. People always say, where's God? He's invisible. Well, he wasn't. He was visible. He was right there, but we screwed it up because we didn't trust his wisdom. We didn't trust his rule and his love. And so in doing that, we were cast out of his presence. We no longer could see him visibly, and we had a lot of stuff hit the fan. We had racism, we had wars, we have abuse, injustice, relationships are broken, divorce, all the kind of stuff that we experience in this life, that all happened. But what we lost most of all on that day at the fall is that we lost relationship with him, face-to-face relationship with him. So listen, all of history is moving towards this final moment where God comes back on the earth. Jesus is going to come bodily and he's going to renew the world, judge the wicked, right every wrong. And what will he do after he does all that? He will settle down and have a meal with his people. Did you hear that? Jesus will have a meal with us. What do you do when you want to get closer to someone? Hey, would you, would you like to, I mean, I don't know, would you like to go on a date with me and we can have a meal, right? Like you, you, you go have a meal with someone face to face. If I want to extend fellowship with you, I have you over at my table in my home. And that's what Jesus is offering us. He's offering us fellowship with him face to face, a meal. Just like he eagerly desires to be with his disciples before he suffers, this also applies to us. He wants to have a meal with you. Do you believe that? Jesus wants to have a meal with you. There's going to be a day where we're going to finally sit there. No more sin, no more death, no more suffering, no more evil. And we're going to sit around this huge table. I don't know how he's going to do it. Because we're, we're hosting some people and it's hard to even host a handful. Right? We're, we're going to sit with all God's people from all times and places, all ethnicities, colors of skin, background. We're going to sit and Jesus is going to be at the center. We're going to see his face. He's going to hold up his cup to us. We're going to see his face one day. So Jesus' resurrection is a foreshadow of that final resurrection when we get to be with him. And the first thing that will take place is we're going to sit down and eat with him. So listen, every time we take the Lord's Supper... We are celebrating what he's done or remembering, but also what he will do one day when he returns. Rights every wrong. Sin no longer affects us. No longer the effects of sin remain in us or around us, and we get to feast and see God face to face. Literally, next time, this, if you take the cup today, think about that. We're going to sit around with him and see his face. But until, until Jesus comes, we wait. We wait eagerly until he fulfills his mission through us that he's commissioned us. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for this. This meal you've given us to be a tangible, physical reminder of what you've done for us and what you will do. We want you to come quickly, Jesus. Right every wrong. We long for the days that there's no subway shootings, no war in Ukraine. No abuse in homes. No human trafficking. No cold shoulders. No broken bodies or anxious hearts. 
No fear of retirement or walking downstairs. We long for that day when all will be right and the greatest crown of all would be seeing your face, being with you, getting back what we lost at the garden. So thank you, Lord, for that truth. And Lord, if there's anything I said that was not from your word, not true, would you correct me and no one hear it? But all that is true and right and good, let it transform us forever until eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.